Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karankov, a PhD student at Stanford University. And in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Professor Chelsea Finn. Chelsea is an assistant professor at Stanford University. Her lab, IRIS, studies intelligence for robotic interaction at scale and is affiliated with Stanford AI Lab and the Statistical ML Group. She also spends time at Google as part of the Google Brain team. Her research deals with the capability of robots and other agents to develop broadly intelligent behavior for learning and interaction. So thank you so much uh, for joining us for this interview, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. And just to get straight into it, uh, we have a standard question we begin with, which is going way back or perhaps not that long ago, but before all the research we're going to talk about, uh, how did you first get into research and into AI as well? Yeah, um, I actually wasn't planning to get into research when I started undergrad. I was pretty excited about computer science and I decided to major in computer science pretty quickly when I was an undergrad at MIT. But I always viewed industry as kind of the, the place to do work that had impact on real products and real things. Uh, but then when I was at MIT, I realized that the that research was really exciting. Uh, I had some misconceptions about research. I thought that research was always something very purely theoretical. And I really liked to work with things in practice. And then I realized that you can do like a PhD in robotics, for example, which um, means that it probably isn't too theoretical uh, if you're actually going to be dealing with real robots. I also did a couple internships during my undergrad as well. And I found the kind of the software engineering aspect of them to be rather uninteresting in many ways. And so the kind of combination of those two things made me realize that research was pretty exciting. I also noticed that uh, a lot of the people that I saw doing cool things in industry all had PhDs. And so I was like, <laughs> well, if I want to do cool things, maybe I should also get a PhD and then I get to do cool things. Um, yeah. And so that, that kind of encouraged me to apply to PhD programs. Um, I also generally found myself more drawn to topics like AI, robotics, computer vision, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was less excited about topics like computer systems. Uh, I very much appreciate people who do computer systems, but um, but it wasn't something that I was I found to be as kind of intellectually interesting, for example. Um, yeah, and so that's roughly how I got into the to the area. Got it. Yeah, I think we hear a lot of people who start in undergrad and and find it to just enjoy research, and then that kind of gets them into the PhD, which is a good way to go. So uh, starting out on your PhD, did you already kind of decide to focus on robotics or was that something that ha happened later? Yeah, so I, when I was starting my PhD, I was like when I applied, I was actually thinking about a few different topics. I think that my top two topics were actually computational biology and kind of robotics and computer vision. And I... Through the visit day process, I actually found that it seemed like if I wanted to develop kind of core new algorithms, doing so in the context of comp bio might be pretty difficult because the problems there were not very well defined and the data was uh, kind of messy. And I think the field overall was kind of in a more nascent stage. 
Whereas in robotics and computer vision, it was an area where people were already innovating a lot on the algorithm side and, and building new kind of machine learning methods and so forth. And so I kind of figured out by the, um, by the time that I was deciding on grad schools that I wanted to do things in the realm of robotics and computer vision. And then I, I realized pretty quickly after that, that I really was interested in the robotics aspect of the problem more so than, than computer vision because it uh, it's much closer to the, like, the use case of using perception for robotics and, and also getting the robot to do things in the real world uh, rather than purely being kind of the, the front-end part of that process. Makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, you started your PhD around 2015, 2016, was it? Yeah, so I started it actually in 2014. Um, so I... No. I graduated from my undergrad in 2014. I started right after that. Um, this was around when deep learning was becoming quite uh, quite popular in some ways. Although at MIT, I think MIT was a little bit behind on the game, and I hadn't really, I don't know, heard that much of neural networks. It seemed to be something that wasn't very popular. I think I actually picked up a textbook once in during my undergrad. I was like, oh, I don't want to read the neural network section. That's like <laughs> it didn't really work well. Um, but then when I arrived at Berkeley, it seemed like a lot of people were, were excited about it. They, neural networks were working really well. Uh, and I started working on deep learning essentially in like month two of my PhD. Wow. And, and that's an interesting point uh, in time because I think by 2014, 2015, uh, deep learning was increasingly the norm in NLP and computer vision. And, you know, people kind of adopted it broadly. But uh, as far as I remember, I think it came to robotics more so around that point. Like people were starting to do deep reinforcement learning in, in around that time and starting to do real robot um, control systems with deep learning. So it seems like a, a good time to get into it before, uh, you know, as, as that area was growing. Yeah, definitely. And actually the, the second project of my PhD uh, was actually the first paper that, got robots to train deep networks from directly from vision inputs to to controls. Uh, and even then it wasn't, even though it was starting to get more popular, it wasn't well accepted. The paper was rejected twice, I think for more political reasons than the quality of the paper. Um, and slowly over time, it's become, I think, a lot more accepted and, and something that the community is more excited about. Definitely. Uh, so yeah, skipping ahead a little bit towards what you did in your PhD, as you said early on, you had this pretty impactful paper on end-to-end uh, -end learning of robotics, which was at that point still very hard and, and really is still hard. But uh, later on, I think uh, it's interesting that you also uh, pivoted a little bit to also working on meta-learning, which was also something that was kind of uh, percolating and it has become much bigger since. And your PhD uh, thesis ended up being learning to learn with gradients. So could you just explain maybe how you got to uh, working on metal learning, where kind of the problem was when you started on it and, and how you, uh, yeah, what was the journey to get to, towards your thesis? Definitely. So the motivation actually came from robotics, which was that I was, we were pretty frustrated that we were training robots like from scratch for every single task. And whenever we ran an experiment, we would kind of wipe away any previous knowledge that it had and have it learn again, starting from scratch for that task. And it just seemed, I don't know, uh, 
kind of dumb uh, and kind of, I mean, it's nice to have robots be able to learn things autonomously, but when humans learn things, they don't start from a blank slate. So yeah, and there's an inherent limit in complexity when you start from a blank slate, you need to, to build on prior learning for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so the motivation was really to try to get robots to be able to have some sort of previous experience and leverage that to more quickly solve new tasks. And um, essentially, that's what the, the, the meta-learning algorithms kind of have the promise of doing. And so in, um, I think, 2016, I was, I'd been doing a lot of work on robotics. We had done a little bit of work on kind of leveraging, like training across multiple different tasks. Uh, but then there was a little bit of work that was enabling what was called few-shot learning, where you took a recurrent neural network and passed data into the model and trained that recurrent neural network to be able to predict labels for, for new examples uh, by using the data that was passed into the model as like this training data. Um, and so this was pretty cool and it was exciting, but it also had some shortcomings in that it was like, I mean, essentially you're trying to get a recurrent neural network to like mimic something kind of like gradient descent. And this kind of leads to thinking, well, can we instead embed gradient descent into this meta-learning process and allow models to learn initializations, learn features such that if you run gradient descent with a small amount of data, it will be able to generalize well. Um, and so that is what led to the, the MAML paper ultimately, and um, which was kind of our initial foray into, into meta-learning. And uh, the, the idea, I mean, kind of arose from conversations with uh, Sergey Levin, who was one of my kind of co-advisors at the time. And it was one of those ideas where kind of initially, it wasn't, we weren't really sure if it was going to work or not, but um, I basically tried coding it up on a really simple kind of sinusoid regression, like 2D regression problem, or yeah, even 1D regression problem. Um, and I got it to work within about a day and it like seemed to work like almost on the first try. Uh, and so that's usually a good sign that you have, you have an idea that's pretty good. And, and the, um, idea, the idea is interesting just uh, to recap is you learn on a few tasks with a neural network and then you sort of have the average of the average solution, so to speak, and then you can start a new task and then optimize for that new task in uh, fewer steps of less uh, learning, roughly speaking, right? Yeah, exactly. So to, to try to learn an initial set of weights such that if you fine tune for a small number of steps, you can solve the task very, very quickly. And that's, yeah, it's interesting because it, it seems like a pretty simple and, and maybe elegant solution where you just have this like mean set of weights that you can then update. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, you tried it and then it just worked and, and it was quite uh, impactful as far as I remember. Yeah, definitely. And at the beginning, it really wasn't obvious that it was going to work. It, it really wasn't clear that you could actually get very far with a single gradient step or a few gradient steps. Like, and also, I mean, like in retrospect, like it's not obvious that you can actually like change the function, the function drastically with just a single gradient step. Um, and it turns out that you can, and that's what those initial experiments were really trying to test. And, um, and from there, I think that, yeah, that the idea was pretty impactful. Um, not just because of the kind of idea in the paper, but I, I think that it also, 
um, some of the work we did on the paper, also a blog post that I wrote that tried to kind of summarize meta learning. I think that that also just raised people's attention of these kinds of methods in the community and uh, helped get more people excited about the ideas. And so, yeah, before that, it was kind of a paradigm that was better known was few shot learning, where you, uh, in a sense, it's similar to um, uh, meta learning, where you do try to learn with less experience by training on, uh, in some cases, uh, previous tasks. But meta learning really was framing in the terms of you have these trained tasks, these test tasks, and you, by using the trained task, you can converge quicker. And I think meta learning kind of took off and was really pretty hot for a while uh, around then after Mammal, if I remember. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's still also pretty popular. I still see like a lot of papers on on various topics, uh, both in supervised learning and in, in reinforcement learning. Um, it's also worth acknowledging that there was also work on meta learning in like the, the 80s and 90s. Uh, and so it, it wasn't something that was like necessarily like a completely revolutionary idea. Um, it was just kind of essentially taking, taking this idea of learning how to learn and especially learning how to learn new tasks and uh, combining it with, with modern techniques. Yeah. And then uh, a little similar to a lot that's happened with deep learning, just reviving basic ideas and, and finding that in the context of modern day, they're uh, very impactful. And so uh, maybe, yeah, just uh, quickly, uh, what, what else did you find with uh, meta-learning after MAML? Uh, what was some of the other breakthroughs or, um, yeah, some other things you found? Yeah, I think that, I mean, some of the things that I was most excited about were it was naturally on the robotic side. Uh, and in my thesis, there's actually kind of a number of kind of case studies of different kinds of applications of, of these algorithms, for example, um, allowing like doing like one shot imitation learning where you can give a robot a demonstration with new objects or new tasks and the robot can quickly learn how to solve that task just from a single demonstration. Also, we applied it to model-based reinforcement learning where we could, um, allow, allow a robot to adapt to new dynamics. So you could change the terrain or change the, um, like add a, a payload to the robot or something like that. And the robot would be able to adapt in actually not just a few episodes, but a few time steps where it could almost basically adapt in real time. So both of those applications were, were pretty exciting to me. Um, we also had some conceptual advances, I think as well. And then more recently, um, this isn't, this is much more recent, not in my thesis, but we um, we looked at meta learning in the context of education, and we actually found that we were able to make significant progress on a really long-standing problem in education of giving feedback to students, where we essentially want to give feedback on open-ended student work. Uh, we were specifically doing this for like an intro CS course, where we wanted to give feedback on Python code that the student had written. And um, this is a challenging problem for a number of reasons. And, and essentially, meta-learning algorithms allow you to kind of be able to give feedback to students with only a small number of labeled examples of feedback for the new exam, for the new, the new, um, the new homework, or things like that. Um, and this was a, a collaboration with uh, Chris Peach and uh, Mike Wu. 
Yeah, I, I happen to see there's a blog post on the Stanford AIL blog titled Meta Learning Student Feedback to 16,000 Solutions. And obviously that is kind of a big deal, especially now that more and more we have these online classes and remote classes. So it's exciting to see these uh, kind of techniques being applied to, to very impactful settings, which is, as you said, very challenging as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the exciting things about that work is that uh, Mike and Chris and, and um, Alan actually deployed it in a real online course. And the students actually really liked the feedback. They actually agreed with the feedback more, they, more than they agreed with human feedback. They found it to be quite useful as well. So um, that was a really rewarding experience. Awesome. And so moving on to more recent research like that, uh, as you said, for meta learning, one of the motivations was so that robots don't start from scratch uh, so that they can actually carry over past experience and, you know, uh, can more quickly uh, solve various things. And there's another branch or approach that you've looked at quite a bit which is using <clears throat> visual model-based RL. And, and that's one of the papers I'm thinking to discuss. Uh, there was also a blog post titled Visual Model-Based Reinforcement Learning as a Path Towards Generalist Robots. Yeah. So could you just give a summary of what that whole kind of idea is about and, and why you think it's, it's promising? Definitely. So the kind of key idea is that robots, um, I mean, we want robots to be able to do lots of different tasks. And one approach for doing that is to essentially learn these fairly general purpose models that try to predict what the future will look like as a function of the actions the robot takes. And specifically, we'll just basically train a video prediction model that is conditioned on the actions that tries to predict future image frames, uh, conditioned on the current image frame and the robot's actions. And if you can train a model like this, first, these models are pretty nice because they only require video stream and the actions that the robot takes. And so you can just have the robot collect a lot of data in principle and train these models on that data rather than requiring extra labels on that data. And second, once you have these kinds of models, the robot can use them to plan to solve a variety of tasks. And so you could give it a goal um, like some sort of task specification that operates on images and have it use its model to look ahead into the future and figure out which actions it should take in order to accomplish that goal. Overall, I think that this approach is, is promising because it's self-supervised, because it allows you to solve a number of different tasks. Um, there are a number of challenges with it as well. Uh, it's hard to train video prediction models on very broad data sets, although I think that I have... I think there's reason to be optimistic about this. And, um, and then also like the planning procedure can also be time consuming as well um, to actually optimize for behavior that will solve a specific specification. Um, but I also think that this is a solvable problem as well. Um, and the last challenge of course, is how to best get the data. Um, but overall in, in that blog post, in that paper, we showed that you could actually solve a pretty wide variety of tasks, including um, things like folding a towel over a fork or picking up an apple and putting it on a plate or pushing an object across a table, um, fairly low level tasks, primitives and so forth, but, um, still a 
pretty wide variety of tasks, including tasks with objects that the robot had never seen before. Right. And and the cool bit is, as you said, that all it really needs is this <clears throat> pre-learned model, and then it doesn't learn to do these new tasks. You just give it some specification of what you want it to accomplish, and it just sort of plans, it looks ahead, what sequence of actions get it there and does it. So there's, it doesn't need to learn really anything from a new task. Uh, and later you showed that actually it can also do cool stuff like use uh, tools to accomplish things. It's it's pretty uh, a powerful idea, even if it's kind of difficult to to <laughs> think about physics and predict video. So it's still definitely a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I mean, in some ways, all the success that we've seen with these very large language models. I mean, that's a very similar recipe in some way, where you try to learn this predictive model of the future with a lot of unlabeled data and use that when solving a variety of tasks. Um, there's, of course, a lot of details that go into things like typically we fine tune the models and so forth, but um, it points towards or at least suggests that we might be able to train very large and powerful video prediction models. Yeah, and uh, just recently, a few months ago, there was some work on applying transformers, which are used in these language models, to reinforcement learning, which showed that they learn quite good models. So uh, now with transformers being applied to images and video and so on, I guess it's, it's kind of a matter of time until we see uh, how well that works. Yeah, I hope so. Um, none of the, the transformer models have shown impressive results particularly impressive results on video prediction. A lot of them have looked at, I think the, well, the most impressive results have been on um, on predicting states, like low dimensional like joint angles and stuff like that. Uh, but I do think that some of those ideas could be, um, well, they haven't shown like any impressive results yet on the vision side. I think that um, they certainly have the capability to. Yeah, and it'll be exciting to see uh, what happens there. Uh, and, and moving on to another work, uh, as you said, one of the things that you need to do for this model-based RL is you need to learn to predict the future. Uh, and for that, you need a bunch of data, right, of, of interacting with the environment and having sequences, videos that you can then learn to predict from. And uh, so for that, there's another pretty cool paper called uh, RoboNet, inspired by ImageNet, uh, a data set for large-scale multi-robot learning, uh, which is, is a huge data set of these 15 million uh, video frames of various tasks. Uh, so yeah, could you give us a quick uh, summary and, and how that kind of came about? Yeah, so the motivation there is that like in, in so much of robot learning, I mean, this is kind of getting back to some of the themes before, but in so much of learning, we kind of learn from scratch and we collect a data set in our own lab for that particular paper. And very rarely do you see examples where we're actually sharing data or reusing data. Um, we often don't reuse data from previous papers. We don't often, often don't reuse or share data across labs. And from the standpoint of machine learning, this is like in some ways completely ridiculous because it, it would be as if like everyone was collecting their own image net or their own kitty data set or their own CIFAR every single time that they wanted to write a paper. And I think that from that standpoint, it's like, yeah, it's very natural to not be able to generalize very broadly and not be able to get as capable of representations. And if we had an ability to share data across environments, across labs, across robots and so forth, 
And so we were trying to take an initial step towards building a data set that could potentially be shared across different institutions and so forth. Um, and so the way that we did it is we um, we had a robot at Stanford. We had some data that we had collected before. We had some data that we collected at Berkeley. We also contacted some people at UPenn because I had given a talk at UPenn a few months prior to it and said asked if they wanted to collect some data on their robots. And uh, we collected data of these scripted motions across seven different in, uh, seven different robot platforms at four different institutions, and collected a pretty big data set um, of from these robots. And we also, in the paper, tried to study whether this could allow us to ultimately fine tune more quickly to a new robot platform in a new environment. And we used the same sort of uh, video prediction kind of approach that we were discussing previously and essentially trained a model on all of the platforms except for one of them and then fine-tuned it on the new platform and found that you could do a bit better with the pre-training than compared to learning from scratch. So, yeah, yeah essentially remember, it was a good Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I remember seeing this and, and being uh, impressed that actually multiple institutions and Stanford Berkeley are all kind of chipped in and just to give an idea of the data here, you, you have this camera view kind of over top, looking down on the table, and these robots uh, autonomously kind of mess around. They just like move around and move objects and so on. So if, if I understand correctly, basically, uh, you know, various students set up these robots near tables and then they ran for hours upon hours uh, to, to get all these different interactions kind of just randomly moving about. And maybe there's some heuristics as well, I don't remember. Uh, so it took quite a bit of uh, collective effort, <laughs> as I understand. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, would, I will say that I think it took more like robot effort than human effort in some ways. Um, once you kind of set up the data collection protocol and the... Um, on the robot and put the robot in an environment and set up the cameras and stuff um, and make sure that the robot doesn't like like jam its hand into the table. Um, once you set all that up, then it's mostly a matter of letting the robots run and collect the data and they can do that fairly autonomously. So in some sense, I actually think it wouldn't be hard to like make a, like double that data set, for example, and, and make uh, even more data because it was all autonomously collected. That said, um, because it's autonomously collected, I mean, the, the, the interactions are fairly limited. It's kind of like messing around with objects, pushing objects, grasping objects. The interactions are still fairly rich, but you're not going to learn how to, uh, for example, like make a bowl of cereal <laughs> from that data set. And one thing that we've been exploring more recently is how we might try to get more higher quality data. Um, we actually just released a data set earlier, um, I think last week, where we collected a bunch of demonstration data for 70 different tasks in 10 different environments. Um, demonstration data isn't scalable to collect a lot more of, but we might be able to use that data as a starting point for collecting higher quality data. Yeah, and, and that's another initiative that has also been at Stanford, as you probably know, with uh, RoboTurk similarly scaling up demonstration data and uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, if these can be combined or, you know, how we can actually get to a, an amount of data that's useful and, and enough to, you know, 
learn this pre-trained thing that can then make uh, it possible to not start from scratch in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the kind of idea in RoboTurk of allowing people to teleoperate robots remotely um, potentially has a lot of promise for scaling up data collection. And uh, yeah, one of the cool things uh, about this project, so in RoboTurk, it was all in one lab, uh, as is usually the case, and all in one setup. Uh, which means that, you know, it, it, the policies that you learn may be powerful, but they won't generalize to like different lighting or, or different uh, robots or, or things like that. And here you had uh, you seven platforms, I think three different uh, types of robots, or was it more than that? Uh, and across many different lighting conditions and tables and so on. So. That also was fairly cool that uh, you actually got variety in terms of how things looked and, and hopefully were able to learn something more general uh, that can be used for different robots, different labs, et cetera, which also is not usually the case. Yeah, exactly. And that's really been our goal is to try to move towards broader generalization by leveraging data sets that can be reused multiple, hopefully a lot of different times as a sort of pre-training. Yeah, and uh, another aspect that I, I found interesting is um, uh, with this huge amount of, amount of data, you could check if these methods you looked at previously on building uh, predictive models of a future from video, you know how how well you could do. Uh, so I, I forget. Can you remind us, like, when you first collected the data and applied the techniques you had? which, as you said, was how you checked uh, if it's useful. Like, how well did the video prediction work? Did it actually, was it able to do it well, or did it have trouble? Yeah, it was a bit of a mixed bag. So I think that we, we were able to get the models to be used for planning for fairly simple tasks. But a big challenge that we ran into was that the models were underfitting a lot. Um, and this is not normally a word that you hear with deep learning. Normally you hear like overfitting and massive overparameterization and so forth. And it turned out that actually like just getting these video prediction models to even fit the training data was a pretty big challenge because a lot of the video prediction data sets that people have trained on previously are more narrow than the kinds of data that we had. We had seven different robot platforms. We also had a hundred different camera viewpoints as well. And this motivated some of our, our later work on trying to get models to essentially overfit, to, to, to be able to actually even just fit the training data of the RoboNet data set so that we can ultimately um, also scale to even broader data sets. Right, right. Uh, so underfitting basically, it wasn't able to learn the full task and it was uh, having trouble. And as you said later on, actually, the next paper I was thinking to bring up is a more recent one called Greedy Hierarchical Variational Autoencoders for Large-Scale Video, which essentially introduced a new model, this Greedy Hierarchical Variational Autoencoder. Um, yeah, maybe can you give a summary of that one and, and uh, kind of how much of a change in performance you saw from the initial attempts of it? Yeah, so our motivation there was that like we're seeing this underfitting problem in video prediction models, and so... And also just like getting, making the models larger was also difficult because we were running into the limits of the memory on our GPUs uh, because ComNets tend to be very memory intensive because their activation maps are pretty large. 
So we um, kind of the idea with there was, can we develop a model that essentially trains in a more greedy fashion where you first train an initial model and then you freeze that. And then you try to train kind of a model that improves the predictions of that model and so on and so forth. And when you freeze the other, like the, the previous models, you don't have to kind of back propagate through the, into the weights of that model. And that allows you to get some big memory improvements. Um, we had a few different kind of versions of this idea of this greedy training scheme and the aspect of it that we found to work the best was a version where we essentially do a kind of layer wise training of the neural network where we train first kind of a one layer video prediction model, and then we make it one layer deeper and then one layer deeper and so on and so forth. And uh, this allowed us to train much larger models on the same size GPU and also ultimately led to really substantially better video predictions on broad data sets like RoboNet. Yeah, it's interesting, as you said, before you were underfitting and, and one natural response to underfitting is just make the model larger, right? Give it more capacity to learn. So it's interesting here that this uh, freezing was kind of an approach to fitting things in memory. Uh, I'm curious then, you also have results in a paper on end-to-end fine-tuning where uh, you don't presumably freeze things. So how did that uh, work? Did you also have tricks on fitting into memory or did that involve something, uh, I don't know, more memory somehow? Yeah, so when we, went, when we did the end-to-end fine-tuning, we just used a much larger GPU. Uh, <laughs> so we a couple GPUs that have 48 gigs of memory instead of 24. Um, and so we used those to, to do the fine-tuning. Um, but yeah, in, in general, it was mostly just a matter of trying to make the model larger. Uh, I should also mention that we actually have a, a more recent paper um, that I, I guess even though the this greedy hierarchical variational autoencoder paper was published in 2021, um, as to typical and deep learning, things are move pretty quickly. And we um, we have a paper called FitVid uh, that was led by Mohammed. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Uh, Mohammed B at Google uh, that actually outperforms the greedy hierarchical variational autoencoders and the idea of FitVid is to essentially just get a model that can better use its capacity. Um, rather than making the model larger, can we have a model that can more efficiently leverage its capacity to fit the training data? Uh, interesting. Yeah, actually, I, I missed this one, but it's exciting to see that uh, so quickly you're moving along. So given these advances in uh, video uh, prediction, video modeling, I guess, uh, can you give some sort of quality of idea of to what extent are we still underfitting RoboNet or is it sort of getting there where you, we can sort of process all the data and then use it for uh, visual uh, model-based RL? Yeah, so in the FitVid paper, uh, Mohammed was actually able to get one model to overfit on RoboNet. Um, it was a model that was actually larger than his default model. His, his default model was, I think, fitting it pretty well, but was not overfitting. And then once he got that, once he made it larger, he was able to overfit on RoboNet, which I think is a great sign. I usually, you don't think of overfitting as good, but in this case, I think it's great, uh, which means that if we give it more data, um, including more diverse data, it will probably be able to uh, fit that data reasonably well. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and now just calling for paper, I see that there's some... Uh 
you know, uh, yeah, the robotic experiments as well as some other experiments. So, uh, guess thinking back on RoboNet and your initial kind of baseline results there, did this uh, better performance enable kind of more robust execution of, of tasks just from like a qualitative perspective? Yeah, we ran some initial experiments and we, or some experiments that are in the paper, and we did find that it was able to get better performance. Um, it was a little bit difficult to run those experiments because we needed to move our robot lab into a different building because our building uh, is being renovated. And the data set was collected in a different building. And so we fine tuned on data set, on a data set collected in the Gates building. And then we ran all of our experiments in the Packard building. Um, so that, like, we talk about how we're. <laughs> evaluating with domain shift in the paper. <laughs> the reason for that is because we need to move buildings. Um, and so the results aren't quite as kind of typical as, um, or quite as like black and white and clear as if we had been able to run experiments in our original building. Um, but I did you still show that you can uh, get an improvement. Yeah, that's, that's kind of funny. I know being at Stanford, basically during COVID, uh, early on, there was a decision to uh, re remodel a lot of where we work in the first floor of the CS building. So all the offices were cleared out, everything was cleared out. And then there was this collected effort to move all of these robots like across the street, <laughs> which is a little funny. You don't, don't think of that as part of research, but that's the sort of thing you get with robotics, which you don't in NLP or so on. Yeah, and we, we definitely could have recollected more data in the Packard building, but we were a little bit short on time. And, yeah. and Mohammed, who was leading the paper, actually didn't have access to the robots. It was uh, Suraj, who's a co-author, who uh, did all that effort. Ah, got it. And then moving on to one last paper, uh, which was a bit of a follow-up to this greedy hierarchical variational autoencoder, or, or led by the same guy, Bohan, who uh, is... is is in, in my lab as well. So I've chatted with him about this. Uh, so this paper is example-driven model-based RL for solving long horizon visual motor tasks. And from what I understand, basically, as you said, the complexity of RoboNet, uh, it's, it's been hard to scale this model-based RL to really complicated stuff uh, that involves especially multiple segments. So that's what this is tackling. And uh, yeah, again, can you just give us the overview and, and how this came about? Definitely. So we, I think the motivation was to like leverage these kinds of models to learn more complex tasks. And typically, a lot of the previous papers were doing some sort of planning where you try to kind of at test time on the fly, figure out what actions will solve the task. Whereas in this paper, we want to combine the learn model with learn value functions in a way that allows you to solve more challenging tasks by using the value function as a terminal cost for the planning procedure. And Bohan did this, he implemented this, he got the robot to learn a variety of skills with this approach. Things like picking up objects, opening a cabinet door, that sort of stuff. And then, I don't know, I don't, can't remember exactly how this came up, but once he actually like tried sequencing them together, because he was learning a bunch of skills with the desk, and if you can if you have a bunch of skills that you can learn, then you should just be able to perform them all in sequence. And the result was pretty cool when he actually sequenced them together. Uh, it seemed to actually work pretty well because the skills that he had learned were also quite robust. And so the kind of part of the paper ended up not just being an algorithm for learning these 
skills for solving tasks with um, with visual observations, but also showing that the resulting skills were robust enough to actually combine it with a symbolic planner that allows you to solve kind of it allows you to sequence those ta- those skills to solve these much longer horizon tasks. And so the tasks kind of correspond to things like organizing your desk, like putting all the objects into a drawer or putting an object from the drawer into the cabinet and, um, and which involves a lot of different things like opening the cabinet door, picking up the object, putting it into the cabinet and so forth. Um, yeah. And I was, I was pretty excited to see the robot, um, the robot doing those kinds of things. Cause typically we're used to doing these very short primitive skills. And in this case, the robot in the end is actually doing much longer horizon behaviors that you might want robots to be able to do, um, in the real world. Right. Yeah. It was interesting. Just looking at the paper, you have, I think 14 primitive skills, as you said, something like open cabinet, uh, grasp the object from different drawers or a desk, and then you can sequence them, uh, automatically, uh, well, with some human involvement, but you can just specify the end outcome and then the robot itself can figure out the sequence of primitive skills to get there and then sequence them. And then, uh, you get, yeah, like a pretty good success rate of like, um, I think around 80, 85%, which uh, given that you're combining multiple, you know, skills in a row, which each can fail and then the whole thing fails, it's very cool to see that uh, this actually works. And not many other papers, I think, have really demonstrated on real robots uh, tasks of this horizon. Yeah, exactly. And it's, also, like on real robots, tasks of this horizon. Also, everything is from raw pixel observations as well. And so, the robot we're not using like mocap markers or anything like that as well. And so, um, overall, I felt like the results were quite impressive. The system does use a fair amount of supervision. Um, so, for each of the primitive skills, there are these example images that are provided by Bohan, and um, and then also for the symbolic planning, um, there's kind of preconditions and post conditions that are defined using image classifiers, um, but. I think it's understandable to require supervision for such challenging tasks. And, um, and overall I was, I was quite, um, excited to see the, the results and what the robot was able to do. For sure. Uh, and speaking of real robot experiments, uh, you've been at Google where they've done this massive, uh, data collection, uh, and, and working on QT up and so on with like 12 robots. One thing I found uh, fun asking uh, Sergey Levin was what kind of things went wrong and sort of what sort of uh, shenanigans <laughs> happened with robots. So I'm curious from your time working on real robots, you know, in your lab or in these various projects, if you have any memorable incidents uh, or maybe, I don't know, catastrophes <laughs> involving robots. Yeah, there were definitely a, a few things. Um... I guess one example is I used to work with this PR2 robot, which is a pretty expensive robot and you don't want it to hurt itself or hurt anything else. And so usually I would stand next to the robot when it was doing, when it was running reinforcement learning and kind of supervise it during the entire experience. And uh, at one point it was, I think trying to learn a task where it was putting a coat hanger onto a coat rack. And uh, during the RL process, it had learned this behavior where it was, essentially just gesturing the coat hanger towards me as if it wanted me to put the coat hanger on the coat rack rather than doing it itself. Wow. Lazy. Yeah. Lazy robot. Um, which was amusing. And then, uh, 
I've also had a fair share of uh, robots breaking in some way. We fortunately haven't had any of this at Stanford, but um, at one point I had, was running robots. I was running experiments overnight on these robots at Google with these older robots that were kind of end of life robots. They weren't really meant for anything anymore. They couldn't, and they had kind of had this known failure mode where part of the robot would break and you wouldn't be able to fix that robot. Anyway, I was watching the robot on this video conferencing system that was set up to kind of check in on the robots. And I noticed that kind of in real time, the shoulder of the robot broke and the entire arm kind of like fell into the bin of the robot. <laughs> and of course, like usually when like things happen, like the robots stop and, and everything. But in this case, the robot didn't stop and the rest of the robot kind of kept on moving <laughs> inside mm -hmm. the bin of the robot. Um, despite the fact that it was kind of detached from the base of the robot. Um, and so that was also something that wasn't, wasn't exactly expected, especially given that robots often stop for various reasons or various bugs and so forth. Um, yeah. So those are a couple examples. Wow. Yeah. That's a interesting story where it fell apart, but kept going. It, it was, uh, that was not a lazy robot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, one question to wrap up on the research front is, I think a lot of people are excited about this question of how do we get to pre-trained policies um, and how do we kind of draw from what people have been doing in NLP and computer vision of uh, doing this pre-training on a lot of data and then applying it to new tasks efficiently. And so far, as, I, as far as I've seen, I don't think we're quite there. And there's been ideas like, learning from video and offline RL, but we haven't quite cracked it. And I wonder how close do you think we are? Do you, are you optimistic we'll get there within a few years or, or do you not have a sense of that? Yeah. Um, I think that in some ways we're pretty close in other ways. I think we're quite far. Um, I mean, in some sense, we're like we've already run experiments, like in, in the greedy hierarchical variational autoencoder paper. We did actually pre-train the models on RoboNet and then fine-tune on data from the from the lab when we ran the robot experiments, and that actually worked pretty well. We didn't have to collect nearly as much robot data as we needed as we would have if we had trained from scratch. Um, I think that ultimately, though, it would be nice. Like, I think that for this really to be to work we need robot learning to be much easier than it is right now. Um, for, for kind of one reason or another, I think that running robot learning experiments in the real world ends up being quite challenging because you have to set up a lot of different things. You need to somehow give rewards to the robot or give some sort of supervision signal or task specification to the robot. Um, you need to be able to like somehow like reset the environment or, or help the robot if it like pushes an object off the table and you need the algorithm to be stable enough so that you don't have to tune hyperparameters a lot. And so I think that right now, um, to really realize this, this goal of kind of very easy, like download a model and then fine tune it on your robot, there's kind of all, like the, all the kind of algorithmic part of trying to get good representations and so forth. But there's also this challenge of, can we make robot reinforcement learning or robot learning in the real world much easier than it currently is, where it's um, where it takes like less than an hour, for example, to set up something and, and get a robot to learn a skill. Whereas right now, I think that it's like almost a research effort uh, to 
to actually set something up for a new task that you might want the robot to do. Yeah, that's that's a big part of robotics research, just the infrastructure you need. I remember starting out in SVL when we were just starting the robotics part, uh, having to build this enclosure, having, you know, to really get, you know, on ladders and stuff and, and get this going. No matter how long it took you to set up, you know, your suite of robots when you first got and started up your lab, it takes quite a bit of effort. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that like some some projects and some techniques end up being lower effort, like some of the visual foresight stuff, I think ended up being lower effort, although it ends up being simpler skills um, because we just needed to like put a put a bin into the the scene and so forth. I mean, there's still a lot of a lot of effort that goes into it, like um, setting up the camera, setting up the, the drivers for the camera and syncing things. Um Although hopefully once you have that infrastructure in place, um, I think that there's both the infrastructure and then also like, even when you have that infrastructure, trying to set up mechanisms for like rewards and resetting the environment and that sort of stuff, um, all that sort of stuff can be pretty time consuming and challenging. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it than with computer vision or NLP, at least in terms of a physical world, you know, which is less of a problem for other people in the eye, for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I think on that note of talking about how uh, painful robotics research can be in some ways, uh, we can go ahead and wrap up. Uh, that was really interesting for me. Uh, thank you so much, Chelsea, for taking the time to uh, be on the podcast. Yeah, and thank you for having me. It's been, uh, been enjoyable to chat with you. And then just to give our outro, this is the Gradient Podcast. You can check out some of our articles at thegradient.pub. Uh, all the usual requests of subscribing, sharing, reviewing, etc. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes.